Good morning. My name's Katrina Lambert, and if we haven't met, I'm the new associate pastor on the block. It's really lovely to be here this morning sharing God's word with you. I can understand um, that this is my first time preaching here in Blackburn, and that might be making you a little bit nervous, like, oh my goodness, just how painful is the next 20 minutes really going to be? Does this woman know what she's doing? Well, if it's any reassurance, I can share with you that last Sunday I preached at Croydon, and there were no injuries, no fatalities, and the building is still standing, and I prayed very hard this week that God would repeat the exact same miracle here this morning. So... I feel confident, which is to say I I have great faith that it will be fine. But just in case it isn't, may I remind you to identify your emergency exits, just remembering that they may be behind you, and please secure your own mask before attending to those people around you. Well, over August and September, as you know, you've been exploring together this wonderful theme of the crazy generosity of God. Way back in August, Alan kicked off the series by saying, generosity is not what God does. Generosity is who God is. And this morning, we're going to see how that expresses itself in this wonderful story from the book of 2 Kings chapter 4. It's a story that has two main characters. The first is a desperate widowed single mother who's trying to save her children, and the other is the great prophet Elisha. Now, you might remember that Elisha is one of those prophetic hall of famers. He's a really big deal. If you follow tennis, you might know that Venus Williams was the sister who preceded Serena Williams, who surpassed her in greatness and in might. And here in the Old Testament, Elijah was the prophet who preceded the younger Elisha, who ended up uh, being more powerful than he was. Elisha's ministry spanned over 50 years, and it's recorded across eight chapters in the book of 2 Kings, where we discover 18 separate incidences where God uses Elisha's power for his purposes. Elisha's ministry unfolds over time. He is a counselor of kings. He is a saver of the nation of Israel, many times from disaster. Elisha demonstrates throughout his life that the meaning of his name, God saves, is a profound truth that can be trusted. And not only does God work through Elisha to save the people of the entire nation of Israel, but he also works through Elisha to save ordinary people like you and me from the things that would defeat us. And that is what this story this morning is about. So let's read together from 2 Kings 4 verses 1 to 7. Now the wife of a member of the company of prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But a creditor has come to take my two children as slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? She answered, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. He said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not just a few. 
then go in and shut the door behind you and your children and start pouring into these vessels. When each one is full, set it aside. So she left him and shut the door behind her and her children. They kept bringing her vessels and she kept pouring. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. But he said to her, there are no more. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts and you and your children can live on the rest. I'd like to spend a few moments with you this morning really marinating our imaginations in what I think is a really profound and powerful story. You see, prophets weren't lone wolves. They weren't isolated monastic figures with poor social skills and bad personal hygiene who ran around the desert waiting for God's holy lightning to strike them. Prophets like Elisha, they ran in packs, they ran around in groups. The collective noun uh, that scripture uses for prophets is a company of prophets. And one of the company of prophets that's led by Elisha has died. And his widow comes to Elisha seeking help. You see, this woman is in debt up to her absolute eyeballs. Since her husband's death, the money has simply dried up. And now one of the moneylenders is coming after her and he's seeking the only assets she has left, which is her two children. You see, he wants to take them and he wants to sell them at the local slave market next Saturday at 9am. Heart beating out of her chest with panic, this woman comes to Elisha and she says, you know that my husband was a holy man. You know my husband was a spiritual man. He was a good man. Elisha, please, won't you help us? And Elisha stands there stroking his beard and he says, hmm, now what should I do for you? And then frankly, he actually kind of mansplains her. Like he asks her the most obvious question there is, well, gosh, what valuable things have you got on your house? Like seriously, Elijah? As if she hasn't already thought about that? I mean, how on earth does this man think she's been putting food on the table for all of her kids all of this time? This woman has sold everything she's got, but she calmly responds to Elisha's question by saying... I have nothing. Elisha, I have nothing. There is nothing in the house, nothing of value, nothing of any worth. Except, of course, actually, there is this tiny jar of oil. I mean, it's not much to speak of. It's, it's you know, I found it this morning in the back of the cupboard. It's, um, it's not like fancy oil, Elisha, not like truffle oil or like extra virgin olive oil. In fact, it's home brand canola oil. And it's not in any kind of fancy jar, you know, it's, it's actually in a jam jar. So I think you can just not worry about that. I noticed that's a little cloudy, could be a little rancid. So let's just rule that out as being anything significant. Well, of course, Elijah tells her to go around to her neighbours and to rustle up all the vessels that she, she possibly can from them. But honestly, what's she going to say to her neighbour? Like, 
Hi, Chan, great to see you. Um, just wondering if you've got any empty vessels? Jan kind of looks quizzically at her. Um, what I mean to say is, could I rummage through your recycle bin and pull out the bottles? Jan says, sure, but what do you need them for? Ah, uh, well, actually, I don't really know. You see, I asked my husband's boss to help me with these financial problems that I've been having. I think he might be from South Australia where they have that bottle recycling program where you get five cents a bottle. So she spends an absolutely exhausting afternoon going from door to door, neighbour to neighbour, attempting to explain the absolute unexplainable. And finally, she drags the last bottle of uh, uh, boxes of bottles into her house and she closes the door and she's utterly exhausted and actually kind of embarrassed. And she goes into the kitchen and she opens up the pantry. She pushes aside the three green sprouting potatoes that have been there forever. And she reaches into the back and she pulls out that little jar of oil. And as she walks to the table where all the bottles that she's been collected have been laid out, she looks at them and she looks at the bottle and like she almost laughs. Like honestly, how is this little bottle going to fill up all of those jars? But she goes and she picks up the first bottle, she pours the oil in, she picks up the second and the third and the fourth and she looks and there's still oil left. And so she keeps going and by the time she gets to the tenth, there's still oil left. And now her heart is fluttering. And by the time she gets to the 20th, she calls her kids to come help. And by the time she gets to the 50th, they're standing there absolutely awed in wonder. And by the time she reaches the 100th, they're dancing. And by the time she gets to the 200th, they're singing. And by the time she gets to the 712th, all the bottles are full and the oil has stopped flowing. And she stands there with her two children and they're surrounded by an ocean of full bottles of golden oil. And as the sun streams in in the late afternoon through the kitchen window, it hits the glass and throws golden lights up onto the ceiling and onto the walls. And standing there, it looks like a billion stars have suddenly arrived in her kitchen where just a few moments ago was nothing but cold white tiles and empty cupboards. And this woman stands there holding her two children and it's like the whole of the world is turned on its axis. It's like she's seeing for the very first time Things aren't as they once seemed. And so she goes to Elisha and she tells him everything that's happened and he confirms what she already knows deep in her bones, that there is enough. There is 
in her. Enough to pay off her credit card and her mortgage, enough to pay off the car loan, enough to fill up her superannuation so she will never have to worry about an empty cupboard ever again. Total security. Such is the crazy generosity of God. What I want you to notice about this story this morning is that God's generosity is revealed to this woman through the thing she overlooked. It was the thing that she thought was so small and so insignificant that it had no chance of speaking to the enormity of her problems. That is the thing that God uses to overwhelm her with his generosity. That is the thing that God uses to secure this woman and this family's future. And aren't we just like her? I mean, how often are we surprised when God's power in our lives doesn't come from the places that we expect it should? I mean, we expect our education to save us. We expect our street smarts to save us. We have faith that if we work hard enough and long enough, then we will be guaranteed to have the things we think we really need. And having set our goals and made our plans and added up the numbers on the bottom of our spreadsheets, we are rendered utterly speechless when God works his saving power through someone or something we have simply dismissed as being insignificant. And the good news I want you to hear this morning is that this is not a glitch. This is the way of God. You see, the history of God's salvation demonstrates time and time again that God turns up in unlikely places and he works through unlikely people. But still, we doubt, don't we? Paul writes to the church in Corinth these words, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, in our culture where our capacity for mastery is king, it beggars belief that the king of the universe would put on human flesh and allow himself to be wrongly convicted and crucified on a cross because we know that it is utter foolishness to give your life for the sake of the world, let alone for the Son of God to humble himself in this act of self-risking, self-emptying foolishness to save a bunch of wretches like you and me. You see, the gospel, it looks like foolishness to the world, utter foolishness. We know that it's silly to give yourself away for the sake of your neighbour. We know that it's dumb to turn the other cheek when you could just simply have your pound of flesh. We think it's really kind of naive that peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control are virtues that we should cultivate 
in a culture that only values domination and power. It is so hard for us to believe that if we want to gain our lives, we must first lose them to God's foolish gospel of downward mobility. And so we just reduce the gospel to three self-help dot points. We just sideline the weak and the vulnerable amongst us because they make us uncomfortable in preference for the certainty and the strength of the strong. And it blows our minds and utterly defies our faith in pragmatism when God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness, God's power is made perfect. On the last Sunday uh, of my ministry at the church where I've been pastoring for these past 10 years, this really beautiful congregation of people gave me a whole bunch of cards. And I'm slightly ashamed to say that what I learnt from reading those cards is that my list of the things that I really hoped they'd value about my ministry were completely different from the things they actually valued about my ministry. I mean, I'd kind of really hoped that they valued my visionary leadership. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want that visionary leadership? Well, as I read those cards, you'd be surprised to know that nobody mentioned my visionary leadership. (laughs) Instead, what they told me was a whole bunch of small stories about things that, frankly, I didn't actually remember or things that I just thought weren't very significant. That these were the things that mattered to them. These were the things that, would, that they would remember about the 10 years that we shared together. It was the meal that I unexpectedly dropped off one night It was the phone call, the text message, the listening ear. It was just turning up. What I learned through those cards is that the power of God was at work in so many ways that I didn't think were significant. The ways in which I so often overlooked. And I'm wondering this morning, How is it for you? What jar of oil is at the back of your cupboard that you've dismissed as being insignificant, that you've overlooked as being worthless? What resources or opportunities are in your life that you're just underestimating the power of? And are you prepared this week for God to show up in the most unlikely place in your life smack bang in the middle of your weaknesses? Where is the crazy generosity of God pouring into your life if only you had the eyes to see? One of the things I love about this story in Second Kings is that it's actually connected to this much larger theme that's happening in the book. You see, one and two kings covers this extraordinary large amount of time in the history of Israel. It begins from the death of King David in the United Monarchy and then it ends with the fall of the Northern Kingdom. 
And if you took a casual flip through your Bible, you would notice in 1 and 2 Kings, time and time again we're told of a king's name and how long this king reigned and when his kingdom ended. In the Northern Kingdom, there are around 20 kings over a period of 209 years. And all those kings were actually pretty terrible. They didn't obey God's word. They didn't uh, listen to God's prophets. They ignored the needs of their people. And they were casual about the lives of their people in battles that only advanced their own agendas. The Bible says time and time again about these kings that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And alongside this narrative of these terrible kings is this counter-narrative of the prophets of God. In Kings, there are nine prophets that are mentioned by name. The two most significant, of course, are Elijah and Elisha. You see, in the midst of this degenerate and idolatrous kingdom ruled by vicious and cruel kings, God calls two men, two men to stand as the authentic, wonder-working heralds of God. And these men stood as witnesses to the power of a good king and the abundant life that was available in his kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it's through these stories, like the one that we read this morning, that we see this kingdom in practice, that we see it in operation. A kingdom where the orphan and the widow and the stranger are provided for and cared for. A kingdom where the king will lay down his life for the sake of his people, not sacrifice their lives for the sake of his power. What stories like Elijah and Elisha tell us is that there is a fundamentally different way of knowing, a different way of experiencing reality than the people who live in palaces and places of power know nothing about. And the challenge this morning for ordinary people like this widowed single mother and for people like you and me is discerning the presence of this counter-narrative. The challenge is always seeing God's kingdom through the mist of the other kingdoms of the world that attempt to obscure our view and cloud our experience. The challenge is seeing. The challenge is seeing. Just two chapters over from this story about the widow and her oil is another story about Elisha. He and his faithful servant are sitting having their mid-morning latte in the local square of the town And suddenly they're surrounded by the army of King Aram, the sworn enemy of Israel. Understandably, Elisha's servant completely, you know, freaks out and spits out his coffee. Elisha prays, Lord, won't you show my servant what I see? Show my servant what I see. And suddenly he looks up and his servant sees that all of the mountains surrounded Uh, around the town are swarming with the army of God and that chariots of fire and mighty horses have surrounded Elisha to protect him. Elisha prays again, Lord, won't you strike the army of Aram blind? And then Elisha leads these blinded soldiers straight to the king of Israel. Of course, the king of Israel can't believe that the army of his enemy has just been delivered to him blind like lambs to the slaughter. 
He wants to kill them. But Elisha says, no, what you're going to do is you're going to throw the most epic feast. You're going to lay out the best of your food and your wine. You're going to fill their stomachs and you're going to send these soldiers home completely unarmed. And that's what happens. And did you know that the army of the king of Aram never launched another raid into Israel again? They never so much as set a toenail over the borderline. Why? Why did that happen? Why did they never raid Israel again? Well, I think it's this, that once you have seen for yourself, once you have experienced firsthand the overwhelming generosity of a good king, once you know what it's like to live in his kingdom, once you have seen the truth of that, you are changed forever. Changed forever. You will forever say, I was blind, but now I see. You see, the things that these men thought had power were revealed to be completely worthless. And the insignificant things that they once overlooked have revealed themselves to be priceless. And having had your eyes opened like that, like this widow, to the power of the kingdom of God breaking forth in your mists, you will live your life on a completely different basis. Because you know, deep in your bones, that the crazy, generous kingdom of God, that in this kingdom there is always enough. There is always enough. Let's pray. Loving God, our prayer this morning is that you would simply open our eyes to the presence of your kingdom in our midst, God. In our families, in the places that we work, in this church, help us to see that you are working, that your promises are good, that your kingdom is just, and that you have issued to each one of us an invitation and you have made a way for us to join you here to live a life of love, to be filled with your grace, to be set free and forgiven. Lord, these are the things that it's easy for us to dismiss in the busyness of our lives and in the cynicism of living in a loveless world. And so I pray this morning that you would remove the scales from our eyes and help us to see rightly the many ways in which you're pouring your love and grace into our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.